Sub tuum presidium confugimus, Sancta Dei Genitrix, Nostras te precaciones, Ne despicias in necessitatibus, Sed a periculis cuntis, Libera nos Virgo gloriosa, et benedita. Hello and welcome to Perusia Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Herman Taig. And as you may have guessed, there might be a little sacred musicness to this special Perusia podcast because I am here with a friend and founder, uh, one of the founders of the Australian Sacred Music Association, Mr. Ronan Riley. Ronan, how are you today? I'm well, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. And, uh, and uh, I also want to say a very special thank you to, to you and all of ASMA. Uh, for the new partnership that is being developed between the Australian Sacred Music Association and uh, Perusia, as we can see from the uh, media wall in the background. So we're going to get into the Ronan Riley story very, very shortly, but first we should probably talk a little bit about the Australian Sacred Music Association, also known as ESMA. <laughs> it's a very unusual <coughs> name for a, an organisation that deals with sacred music. So tell us about ESMA. <laughs> well, funnily enough, uh, we found out after the fact that ASMA is also a, uh, an ancient Greek word for song. So that kind of worked really well with what we were trying to achieve. <laughs> um, I guess, uh, well, a number of countries across the globe have uh, some sort of a, a sacred music association or a sacred music um, uh, church music association of America is another famous one. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a group that's trying to drive the, the church's vision for mm -hmm. sacred music, uh, particularly in the last century. Um, there were two in America from the early 1900s that formed into the 60s uh, into the Church Music Association of America. Uh, and there was a new impetus given to the direction of uh, national bodies to implement the ideals and reforms of sacred music across the last century uh, in the 60s uh, under Pope Paul VI when he asked that national associ associations be formed mm -hmm. to work together with the Pontifical Institute of Sacred Music in Rome. Uh, so a number of us found uh, 15 or so years ago that there was nothing like that in Australia uh, and we fairly audaciously decided that we could form something mm -hmm. um, that was quite small uh, and had quite an audacious um, hope, mm -hmm. which was to uh, help sacred music come into the parish setting, into school settings, and basically try and help form uh, the next generation and generations going forward in the sacred music tradition. That's excellent. Yeah. That's a so very noble ten, goal. 10 years next November. 10 years, so we're coming up to the 10th anniversary. Yep. So look out, you're going to be hearing more podcasts, I suspect, on the Australian Sacred Music Association. Uh, but today, we want to ask the question, who is Ronan Riley? So uh, <laughs> let's go backwards in time. Uh, were you born into a Catholic family? Yes, yep. so yeah, Irish you, parents. Irish Catholic, yeah, yep. I've got a very Irish uh, Scottish background myself, yep. so well met. 
Um, uh, tell us a little bit about your, um, the, the Catholicism you experienced as a, as a child and in the home. Uh, I would say that uh, both parents growing up in Ireland, mum particularly in the west of Ireland, in the Gaelic-speaking area, mm-hmm. uh, there was a very deep-rooted um, devotional faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't say it was particularly uh, rooted in the liturgical tradition as such. Uh, we attended the local parish at St. Joseph's in Belmore, where I went to primary school and was mm-hmm. baptised. Mm-hmm. Um, the music that I grew up with there was far from what I came to discover at the cathedral uh, mm-hmm. in St. Mary's under Cardinal Pell uh, when I joined the cathedral choir there in 2002 mm-hmm. as a nine-year-old, uh, ten-year-old. Um, so growing up, we had a strong devotional faith and um, a kind of piety for Our Lady and the saints, mm-hmm. especially St. Mm-hmm. Patrick and St. Bridget. Uh, having the St. Bridget's Cross, the little mm-hmm. uh, made of hay or whatever it's made of, mm-hmm. a few of them around the house. And we went back to Ireland a number of times growing up uh, and mm-hmm. you'd meet older aunts and uncles and mm-hmm. grandparents um, and you'd, you'd kind of see that uh, infusion of the Catholic faith um, on a, a cultural level into, mm-hmm. into the Irish home. Um, pretty much every home that we'd go into in Ireland would be a, an image of the Sacred Heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there was very much a, a, a pious kind of exposure to the faith, um, mm-hmm. prayers before bed and such, mm-hmm. um, but certainly didn't really experience much of that liturgical patrimony and richness okay. until, until going to the cathedral in 2001. Okay. And you said that you uh, started going to the cathedral when you were about 10 years old? Yeah. So my parents got married in the cathedral uh, in 86, and they knew that there was a cathedral choir that mm-hmm. uh, you know, specialised in sacred music. and. Uh, growing up in primary school, I was involved in a number of little choirs in the parish and mm-hmm. in the school. Um, and, you know, just generally uh, quite musical, I suppose, in, in the way I'd do things or mm-hmm. pick up on things. You know, Dad might be cutting a piece of wood with a saw and I'd be there dancing mm-hmm. a, a little strangely in the background to the beat that he was cutting with. Um, so it's kind of like, oh, you know, he's into music and rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my parents thought, well, we'll try him out audition them for this choir. Okay. So I auditioned in 2001 um, when I was in year four and was accepted uh, as one of the ten boys that was taken in each year. Um, so I started in, in January, end of January, February of 2002 mm-hmm. uh, and spent eight years there uh, until 2009, so eight mm-hmm. school years uh, okay. from year five to 12 and that was every Sunday in at the cathedral except right. for holidays. Yeah, so what exactly did, did that look like? Were you, were you going there for rehearsals after school or was this just a, a weekend thing? No, it was, it was quite strenuous um, mm. in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, it was just what you were doing, so you just did yes. it. But uh, the Cathedral College took in 10 boys in year five each year mm-hmm. and there was a special year five, six composite class right. that consisted of 20 boys that then filtered into the year seven to 12 school. Um, so 10 boys were taken in year five and now they've brought that back to year three. So they mm-hmm. have year three up because they found that taking in boys in year five only gave them about two years of having that higher voice yep. before their voice would change and it wasn't really worth the investment so now they have year three onward. Mm. So you were also receiving your schooling there mm. as, as well as the, the musical education. Yeah, so yeah. we had uh, a 7.30 a.m. rehearsal for an hour and a half mm-hmm. each morning, Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then school would start at 8.45 and we'd be over there around 9 for the first period, first lesson. Mm -hmm. And Wednesday evenings we would join up from 4.30 to 7pm with the men of the choir Mm -hmm. and that's when we would 
could combine together and seen through polyphony and, mm. and other works that we'd learnt during the mornings. Uh, and then on a Sunday morning, you'd, you'd turn up at around 9 and Mass would be at 10.30. Okay. So it was quite a, quite a, a lot each week. Yes. Uh, and when you've got your two-week holidays uh, and then your six-week break or so after Christmas, you'd be off. Uh, for January, uh, mm -hmm. you appreciated that downtime. Yeah, um, I can but imagine. But then you were, you were ready to get back into it when you did. Yeah, how wonderful. Um, so what then happened after year six? Was there a continuation? Yeah, no, nothing, nothing really changed yeah. except that mm -hmm. you would go from a class of 20 boys mm -hmm. uh, in a small little classroom with a specific teacher in the composite class of only choir boys. Yep. And then year seven, you would filter in same building, same school, yep. um, same everything, same uniform and all the rest. You'd filter into the year seven uh, class, yep. which would have about 110 boys or so okay. um, from around around Sydney. Yeah, how yep. wonderful. Um, and that's where you did uh, all of your high school schooling? Yep, yep. yep. Year, year five and six there in the in the composite class for the choir and then seven mm -hmm. to twelve as well. Yeah, okay. All spent there. And uh, now, so it sounds like you've been Catholic all of your life. Mm -hmm. um, so we hear a lot of conversion stories and you get the conversion story like mine where, you know, I left the church and went crazy for decades, but something happened to then bring me back. Was there a period in your life when you started to, to drift away from the faith and what happened for you to take your faith more seriously? Yeah, I, I, I don't think, um, I never experienced any kind of questioning on mm -hmm. any serious level. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, having that exposure to the beauty of the church's musical patrimony mm. uh, and then coupled along the way with its context in the liturgical mm -hmm. um, expression, not just isolated as you know, music on the radio or music at the concert, uh, as profound and beautiful an experience as that can be, but coupled with the liturgical context. I think mm -hmm. uh, that along with my probably annoying trait of questioning a lot of things mm -hmm. um, perhaps even facetiously, like one teacher told me in, in, in high school. Um, <laughs> I learned a lot at a younger age, which gave me the ability to appreciate it. Um, and I think had I not had that exposure to the great musical tradition, mm -hmm. um, and probably, as the saying goes, you know, if you keep busy, there's not much room for idleness. Yeah. Having been so busy in that uh, year five to year 12 bracket, uh, with choir activity, with schooling activities and coupled with the choir you had to take on a musical instrument so I took on the cello mm -hmm. so I learnt cello the whole way through that as well. Um, I think that experience of being so immersed so steeped in something mm -hmm. and having a natural affinity with music and with my Irish parents mm. being quite uh, open to the idea of something other than what you're in so well I'm in Australia and I'm an Australian citizen mm -hmm. but my parents are not. Uh, I speak English or a version of it, mm -hmm. uh, my, my mother does not. So mm -hmm. the idea of having things that were foreign to me mm -hmm. was really not an issue. Mm -hmm. In fact, if anything, it made me think, oh wow, what's that other tradition? What's that other uh, expression of, of language or music? Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, mum speaking Gaelic, um, I had a lot, of, uh, a lot of songs growing up, um, you know, Gaelic laments and, and Irish melodies and such. Mm -hmm. So I think having all that experience at a young age um, probably left me no room or time to think, what's this all about? There was so much to keep me satisfied, yeah. um, so much to, to uh, keep the brain active. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have time to think, what's it all about? Obviously, you ask those questions as well, yeah. Yeah. but I did have a lot to answer them with already. 
with yeah, what I was experiencing. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it sounds like you pretty much made the faith your own quite early on. Yes. Then. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And you would owe that to the type of upbringing that you have, being completely immersed in the, in faith and in beauty and in in the liturgy. Yep. yep. Uh, and I also think just having good role models. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of good. Uh, lay and, and clerical folk over the years having good mm. conversations with them mm -hmm. um, and obviously you know seeing people practice the faith with mm. uh, with charity and with um, with joy mm. not that that's a you know a prerequisite 24 7 to walk around with a smile but mm. to have uh, maybe joy is not the right word but a peace and a restfulness with which they mm -hmm. approach things yeah. Um, as a motive beings, you know, we, we get perturbed and pushed off from time to time. But mm. if there's an underlying uh, reason behind which you do things, um, mm. uh, certainly seeing people like that growing up yep. um, gave me a lot uh, to, to kind of look up toward and em yeah, emulate. Excellent. And was there particularly strong catechesis in, in the Orthodox Catholic faith at school as well? Not really. No. No? No, the faith, no, the faith teaching at the yeah. school... Um, was quite quite lacking. Um, it was certainly my experience of uh, of you know Catholicism in Catholic schools, yeah. in primary school in the eighties, and then high school in the nineties. So, yeah, that that yeah. Um, the disparity, in fact, between mm -hmm. you know the liturgical and musical context, and mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the the catechetical context of the choir life mm -hmm. was quite different to the school life, mm. um, uh, and that if anything, gave me opportunity to, uh, you know, be apologetic and to, to speak out against things, mm -hmm. even if I did it probably, in hindsight, lacking a little, a little charity. And, um, <laughs> we all tend to start out yeah. like that when we get into o a bit of apologetics. Overzealous. overzealous. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, one, one, one morning, as an anecdote, uh, the science teacher was taking our, our role and said, oh, you know, tomorrow's the uh, assumption. And he went to that school, mm -hmm. um, funnily enough. He said, now because some woman whizzed off into heaven, body and soul, we have to miss biology tomorrow morning and go to mass. And of course, I piped up from the back and got in trouble. But <laughs> the other students kind of liked the fact that there was someone challenging yeah, wow. the comments that really shouldn't be passed in any context, mm. let alone one of inequality between a teacher and students to make a disparaging mm -hmm. comment against something that the school's doing. It's never appropriate, really. Mm. Um, so there was a fair bit of that uh, throughout high school, such to, to the point that, you know, I, I was dubbed Father Riley. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, I'd say, you know, I can hear your confession, but it won't be absolved. Um, so little things like that. But And you may tell others. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not bound to secrecy. That's right. There's no seal of confession here. Yes. But I think it just proves the point that uh, if you're given some amount of knowledge and understanding and equipped to defend certain aspects of the faith that are challenged nowadays mm -hmm. or just generally hard to understand and to grapple mm -hmm. with, uh, that can become quite useful in helping other people uh, understand it as well. Um, mm -hmm. But probably not the ideal context to be doing it in, in a classroom, taking on a teacher. Mm -hmm. Not ideal. Yeah, fair enough. So what did life then look like for you after high school? Yeah, so I was um, quite a, an eager beaver in terms of travel and obviously mm -hmm. a lot of Almost all my family are in Ireland, some in, in the States as well, in America. Um, so I, I finished my last exam uh, on mum's birthday, November 3rd, 2009. Mm -hmm. And I was on a plane November 4th over to Europe. Um, 
probably not the, the nicest way to do things, you know. <laughs> See you guys. Um, but that's, that's, that's where I was at. I, I went over straight over to Europe and uh, walked the last week of the Camino. Um, wow. Spent a couple of weeks at uh, some monasteries in France. You and know. you're the ripe old age of 18, one would assume. At yeah, point. but yeah. having done a few yeah. trips prior to that with family. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, yes. It was very... Um, yeah, I was just eager to kind of go out and mm. see things and experience mm. um, aspects of the faith and music that you can't experience in Australia. Yeah, a, lo a lot of people post uh, high school, um, and it was a little later for me, I went travelling in around 23. Um, we, we're going off just to see and experience the world, but it sounds to me very much that because the faith was so strong with you, uh, travel in Europe also had a faith-based um, objective to it. Yeah, yeah and I think... Uh, planning my trip essentially around pilgrim sites or shrines wow. or monasteries. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously as a, as a uh, very newly graduated uh, year 12 student, mm. money wasn't really around. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to stay at a monastery and offer, you know, work during the afternoons, I'll come out and help you do whatever, yeah. which, which is obviously always an option at, at a Benedictine monastery. Mm -hmm. You'd go out and you know, move logs with the monks or something, but then yes. you'd also have uh, the entire exposure to their chanting of the office, chanting of the of the mass mm. each day. So I did I did that for about three months, and then I returned to to Sydney mm -hmm. um, in 2010, and spent quite a lot of time uh, involved with Family Life International and and, mm -hmm. and helping out with pro life initiatives that they had going. And that was the first year they ran 40 Days for Life. Wow. So I was heavily heavily involved in that that year. Um, and that's when I joined uh, with my desire to, to come to more, you know, a deeper knowledge and love and appreciation for the Gregorian chant tradition, mm -hmm. separate from the polyphonic tradition or the hymn, hymn, hymnody tradition. Yep. Uh, I decided I would join the scholar at Maternal Art of Mary Lewisham, the fraternity of mm -hmm. St. Peter Parish. Mm -hmm. uh, so I spent about six years there um, okay. learning, learning a lot more about the annual cycle of the chant and, and delving and, into that. And, and who were you learning from at this point? So who was, who was running that choir at uh, the Heart of Mary? There was a, a, a man by the name of Anthony Ellsmore, mm -hmm. um, and he took the scholar there. And there were maybe 10 to 15, it would fluctuate, mm -hmm. um, other gents in the scholar there. And I wouldn't say it was so much a, an academic um, kind of rigorous learning like it had mm -hmm. been at the cathedral. But it was more a opportunity to be steeped in the week-to-week, uh, mm. month-to-month, year-to-year annual cycle yep. of the chant and how it flowed from mm. Advent to Advent each year. Mm. Um, so it wasn't like there was a rigorous schooling in the chant notation, the history of it, yep. the meaning of the chants, um, how they exactly worked and fit and all that. But it was an experience from each liturgy to the next and then you take a one year and you come back, oh, I can't remember that. Yeah. And the second year rolls in, the third time you're seeing things, you think, I do remember that. And the fourth yeah. one clocks it, wow. I certainly remember that. And then by the fifth and the sixth year, you go, I feel at home. Yeah. Um, and we had that in a certain sense at the cathedral, but we didn't really do as much Gregorian chant. Yeah. Maybe a, an entrance antiphon and a communion antiphon at most. Mm -hmm. But certainly the other proper chants of the liturgy were not present um, yes. at the cathedral. Yes. So. Okay. Uh, for those not here in Australia, of course, Maternal Heart of Mary is a fraternal society of St. Peter. 
uh, parish. So it's the it's the traditional Latin mass that we're we're talking about here with all the all the graduals. Yep. Uh, one uh, graduale Romanum yep. um, is the, the the song book of the church that they would have been using. Yep. Um, and then one assumes that when you were out amongst monasteries and so on, you would be hearing the Antiphonale Romanum, Correct. which is kind of the songbook of the of the monastery, the songbook of, the, of the, office, the, yeah. the office of the Divine Office or the Liturgy of the Hours. Yep. Okay. Um, so these days you would, of course, be called a sacred musician, and that would be your profession. So how did that develop? How did that come about? So you're at Maternal Heart of Mary. You've you've been training as a musician all of your life what happens next? Yeah, so I think um, it became quite apparent that the music and the context of that music that I had fallen in love with mm -hmm. and had, uh, you know, it's obviously a fine line between owning something and being associated with it, therefore people mm -hmm. think of you as that. Mm -hmm. But the two come together uh, as they always do in life. I do this, I become more in love with it, I fall more in love with it. Uh, I do this and people associate me with that. So. That's just how it goes. So I think by the time, you know, I'd graduated from high school, uh, as I said, going overseas and experiencing more of it, mm. um, I was convinced wholeheartedly of the, the rich beauty um, and the need for people to also be exposed to it and mm -hmm. given the opportunity, afforded the opportunity like I had been, to fall in love with it yeah. and to uh, both learn from it and to feel at home with it, um, for it to be something that's familiar to them, mm. uh, for, for something that is accessible to them, um, and something that can work on them because of its power as a sacramental, that mm. the grace can be effective. Um, so I think there was a few years there, and obviously with the Australian Sacred Music Association, a few of us came together in 2013, 2013, uh, and, and it was founded on the Feast of St. Cecilia, patroness of music, in November of that year. Mm -hmm. um, and for a few years there, and even late of high school, um, I had been, I don't really know even how it happened, but roped into potentially helping other people at a workshop in a parish, or sure. can you come along and you know, be yeah. someone to, to help out with? So I think I started doing a, a number of those kind of activities. Mm -hmm. um, singing at first masses of ordinations, singing at ordinations themselves, mm -hmm. um, religious professions, uh, a million and one weddings and funerals. And I think okay. you start to become known as, oh, you do that style of music yes. and we'd like that. So you do a number of those type of events. And I think mm -hmm. word of mouth as well as confidence um, kind of go hand in hand and, and you start to, to do what you know you're good at and mm -hmm. what, you, what you know and love. Um, so by the time 2013 rocked around, I think when, when we founded the Australian Sacred Music Association, it, it became evident to me that I could employ my skill set of both knowing and yeah. loving this form of music and uh, being able to deliver it and explain it and expound mm -hmm. upon it, um, that that's what I should kind of mm -hmm. do. Um, and coupling that with uh, studying a Bachelor of Theology mm -hmm. at Notre Dame in Sydney from 2010 to 2014, I'd always wanted to not look at the music as a uh, standalone or a, an mm -hmm. isolated, aesthetical, beautiful thing, mm -hmm. and not even as a form of music, so to speak, yep. but to see it for what it holistically is in the church's mm -hmm. eyes, which is sung prayer mm -hmm. uh, and a vehicle by which grace can be transmitted to people and a, a real 
important sacramental of the church. You know, mm-hmm. you have the seven sacraments by which grace is given, uh, instituted by Christ, but then you have a, a whole plethora and myriad of, of sacramentals that the church employs, um, from blessing yourself with the holy water to using a rosary beads or, or whatever else. Mm-hmm. But Gregorian chant is something that's there through the entire um, history of the church mm-hmm. uh, and, and very soundly goes back to the, to the temple in many ways. Yep. Um, so it's something that uh, is inherently human to sing, to, mm. to love music, to appreciate it on a natural level across all cultures and times. And then that's taken in by the church and owned. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think having that desire to expound upon the sacramental beauty and mm-hmm. expressiveness and effectiveness of the music coupled with just getting people singing, mm. the, the far less lofty end of it um, was something that kind of drove my direction for, for a number of years there. And then I uh, started teaching at a school in Brisbane in 2016, uh, independent Catholic school. So I spent yeah. six years up there teaching um, prep to 12 systemic music, mm-hmm. um, coupled with a, a, a heavy kind of amount of sacred music and mm-hmm. getting a, you know, a scholar going, um, wow. much like I grew up in a boys scholarship program, mm-hmm. a high school polyphonic choir, things like that. And then uh, in the last year, moved down with my family to, to Wagga Wagga to be closer to um, both sides of the family and have yeah. a little bit more of a rural lifestyle. Yes, yes. Yes, yeah, so uh, let's, let's talk about your, your vocation for, for a moment. Was, um, was priesthood ever a consideration for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Flirted with the idea for a long time. And I think mm-hmm. um, it's a very natural reality and probably where the majority of vocations come from is, is being in the context mm-hmm. of doing things uh, which have a priestly flavor to them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So certainly singing in the, in the liturgy at the cathedral every Sunday for the best part of eight years and mm-hmm. you know, wearing cassock and surplice and sitting mm-hmm. in the choir stalls of the sanctuary, um, yep. there's a heavy exposure to that liturgical context. Um, knowing a, a number of priests, uh, seminarians going through to priests over the years Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like, oh, this otherness of mm-hmm. a, a man dressed in black. It's like, who's that? You know, mm-hmm. when, you, when you know a lot of them personally, it's very easy to identify yourself yeah. as potentially doing that. Uh, I then also, you know, really entertained the idea of the monastic vocation. Um, oh, wow. And cool. spent, spent many years looking and reading and, and getting into that. And I have mm-hmm. since become a Benedictine Oblate with my mm-hmm. wife. Um, uh, which is kind of like you know the tertiary version, uh, like yes. a, a tertiary Franciscan or Dominican uh, lay lay order, um, Dominican or, or Franciscan. It's the equivalent of that. Yep. Um, but yeah, in the end, you know, mm. uh, spend a lot of a lot of time doing little retreats here and there, mm-hmm. um, lots of talking with various priests and such, and concluded it wasn't for me. Yes. Um, yeah. So. So then you considered the vocation to marriage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And how did that work out for you? Yeah, so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> when no. did you meet your wife? I <laughs> uh, met my wife through her brother, actually, in a singing group called Prima Luce uh, in cool. 2012. So coming up on 10 years. Um, and I'd been singing with him uh, for about five years. Mm. Um, well, no less, about three years. Uh, and came to know his family quite mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, and did what you shouldn't do, which is to ask your best mate to, you know, date his sister. Well, I didn't ask him, I asked his sister. <laughs> so that was a bit of a shock for a little while. Um, but I think, you know, we saw eye to eye on a lot of things. And he, my brother-in-law, has gone off now to um, 
Notre Dame Priory in Tasmanian is a simply professed monk down there. So three more Praise years God. and he'll be a, a fully professed mm. monk. So he's definitely gone down that trajectory of yep. falling in love with the faith and circuit music. And he's a wonderful singer and musician himself and composer. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, my, my wife and I, we, we got married in 2017. So just mm -hmm. at our fifth anniversary. Um, yes. And been, been blessed with three children. Yes. Uh, so little Gregory. Gregory. Uh, was there a particular reason you went with the name Gregory? No, but I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I floated the idea of a second name being Ian, but that mm -hmm. was knocked back. I see. Uh, it would have been Gregorian then, but um, yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, obviously, I've got a great love for Saint Gregory the Great, um, and and indeed Saint Gregory um, yep. sent uh, Augustine over to England mm -hmm. uh, to missionise the English. So there's a great connection there, even in Australia, with Archbishop Polding and the Benedictine um, kind of foundation of, of of the faith in Australia. Yeah. But certainly, you know, with with sacred music, but also just as a, as a name, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful yes. name. So we've got Gregory um, and a little daughter, Elodie, mm -hmm. um, an old French name, and Julian, a little son. Excellent. Uh, keeps Excellent. us busy. That, I certain they would. I only have two children, uh, uh, ten and uh, sorry, nine and six, and they keep me busy <laughs> enough. I take my hat off to anyone who goes more than two because, uh, yeah, I struggle. You're a better man than I. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know about that. And, uh, <laughs> of course, so... Um, you're, you're continuing to work as a, a sacred musician and you're continuing to teach. And uh, recently, um, that the opportunity to teach in, in schools uh, has, has started to, to gain momentum mm -hmm. um, in, a, uh, in a, a schools program. Tell us about that. Yeah, so one of the um, long-standing points or principles or mm -hmm. uh, aims of the church's documents um, indeed, the, the very name Scola, the group of singers, Scola mm. Cantor means school of singers, Scola means school, mm. is to really get into the schools in any context and teach the young children yep. because they will grow up and they will uh, become the next generation, obviously, but they also are at an age where they are really well disposed to learning and that's mm. why we mm. do schooling at that stage of our life and not yes. the latter end or the middle end of life. Yep. Um, so there was an opportunity in 2018 uh, um, through a teacher at Brigidine College at Randwick mm -hmm. uh, and she attended a workshop that I gave um, on some of the simple end of the chant at St. Jerome's Punchbowl, mm -hmm. uh, just a parish workshop there and she attended that and she, she had herself attended a conference on sacred music in uh, Dunwoody Seminary in New York that Archbishop Fisher Excellent. had sent her off to. Yeah. Uh, she came back in, inflamed and on fire mm -hmm. to do much with it, but didn't have the, uh, the skills necessarily to, to start teaching it. Mm -hmm. So she got me into the school there and I taught um, about 60 of the, the girls from year seven to 12. Uh, a couple of simple English chants and mm. one um, proper Latin communion chant that mm -hmm. they sang at a school mass mm. and it was received really well um, and after hearing word of that Anthony Cleary, uh, Director of Evangelization for Sydney Catholic Schools, mm -hmm. uh, we met up and he said this would be great to do across mm. the schools that are willing to host it. So by the end of 2019 we had a, a final mass with Bishop Umbers mm -hmm. at St. Thomas at Canterbury, uh, St. Thomas of Canterbury Lewisham. Um, with about 350 students, mm -hmm. and they sang together the Missa Primitiva setting of the Mass, the Kyrie, the Holy, Holy Lamb of God from the Missal, yep. um, and a couple of other simple little chants uh, mm. 
the girls from Brigidine saying the proper chants of the Mass, mm -hmm. um, and the translations provided in a booklet for everyone to follow along with. And uh, Mr. Thomas Wilson from the cathedral came along and accompanied on the organ. And the entire program uh, was coined uh, or named the Jubilate Deo program. Mm -hmm. And obviously those two words come from, from the Psalms, from Psalm mm -hmm. 99, praise God, as a general kind of term. But mm -hmm. it's the same term or the same phrase or the same name that uh, Paul VI used in 19... Let me get the date right. Um, 64? Mm -hmm. 74. Mm -hmm. 1974. So towards the end of his pontificate, um, he released a document uh, to the bishops of the world and asked that all the bishops ensure that the Catholic faithful of the Latin Rite knew this core repertoire of Gregorian chant. Mm -hmm. um, so he's got that mass setting in there, the ordinary mass setting. Mm. Um, and I think there's about 27 or so pieces of chant in there in Latin mm -hmm. across uh, different areas. So Eucharistic, Marian, mm -hmm. uh, couple for the... the St. Peter and Paul, um, all the mass responses, you know, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Mm -hmm. So we kind of took that as the uh, driving force or the impetus behind which we would then teach the children in the schools. Yeah. So coupled with Sacrosanum Concilium of 63, Vatican II's document on, on sacred liturgy, asking that all school children be afforded this opportunity to learn sacred music, mm -hmm. and then making that specific in the context of Jubilate Deo, mm -hmm. um, book or whatever you'd call it. It's not really a document, so to speak, but using that repertoire. Um, and, and it went really well. And then 2020 was, was going to be a great year and Fisher was locked in. Archbishop Fisher was locked in to, to uh, offer the, the final mass of 2020 and, and COVID and hit. chaos so, so ensued. So asthma went to the side. <laughs> <laughs> the coughs were all around. Um, indeed, so yeah. indeed. Um, uh, but we're hopefully post COVID now, so uh, it would seem that those programs are, are starting to, to gain momentum once more. And so hopefully we can start seeing yeah. uh, more of that sort of thing uh, in the future here in, in, in Australia. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. the hope. And there's still, yeah. um, you know, the, the key elements are still in place and the desire to do it um, when is another question, but that, mm. that will uh, play out. But there's certainly still that desire and that um, hope amongst some of the school children that had had mm. that experience in 2018 and 19 that are still in school to to uh, to, to do it again and mm. we've also branched out into Ubalata Deo parishes so we've yep. got our first well uh, I was about to say you know yep. we're, we're we're talking mostly about school children here mm. but you know the occasional middle-aged man uh, discovers and falls in love with the chant himself so is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for anyone that's not in school? Definitely. And, and that's what we're talking about here. So not, not only is, is Jubilate Deo going to be offered to school children, but it can be offered to any parish yes, that's indeed. interested. Yep. Yeah. So our first workshop uh, in terms of a, a centered workshop, mm. uh, as opposed to going out to individual uh, parishes or communities, mm. which has its advantage, but it's also, um, you know, you're generally working with smaller groups Mm -hmm. So it's harder to realize the chant in a small group yep. uh, if, if everyone's brand new to it. Mm -hmm. But it's also, you know, you obviously spend a lot more time trying to do those workshops yep. across a large area. So our first parish's workshop will be uh, on August the 20th at St. Thomas of Canterbury at Lewisham. Mm -hmm. um, and it will run for, you know, a few hours in the middle of the day. And the aim will be to have a historical overview and a sacramental overview of the chant. Mm -hmm. um, where it sits now and why it's important, and then to learn the mass responses, the simple uh, Missa Primitiva setting in the, in the Missal itself, mm -hmm. uh, and 
look at one particular antiphon in Latin as the you know the the high end of what chant has been across the centuries, um, mm -hmm. so that people can. It'll be simple, but it'll yes. be achievable with with yeah. the group. So I think there's there's already about uh, thirty or so people that have indicated mm -hmm. they'll be attending. Mm -hmm. um, so it's our hope that when we do a few of those a year, people will come together, have a great experience, learn something that they can then bring back to the parishes, and we can liaise more fully from from there. Yeah, this is absolutely wonderful, and of course, uh, more kind of big news apart from the partnership between Perusia and Asthma is that uh, I too am joining asthma as a, as a student, uh, but also as, uh, as someone who can uh, help to, to represent asthma mm -hmm. and help with events and so on. So at the August 20 event in Lewisham, you can also meet me and you can come. I'll be standing in front of this banner and I'll be bringing some Perusia resources as well because of our new partner, partnership. So you know, get in touch if there's something that you, you would like to buy but would like to save on postage, you can always get it from me at this particular event. Yep. Um, Ronan, what would you say to someone who's listening to this podcast and thinking to themselves, that's all good and everything, but I'm not really interested in that chant stuff? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I suppose more context would be required to give a full answer. Indeed. Um, if, if you're Catholic, um, I, would, I would ask of what right, if it's Latin right, Mm. I would say uh, not knowing of the chant tradition mm -hmm. uh, would be akin to not knowing your grandparents or not knowing mm -hmm. something important mm -hmm. about your, your uh, familial patrimony. Mm. Um, uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say it'd be like being adopted and, mm. and being totally divorced from your tradition, but I would challenge anyone that the chant tradition um, mm -hmm. is not an icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. It's not an added extra, um, the loaded to the fries. It's something yes. that's far more substantive. Yes. Um, it's essential. It's an integral part of the liturgy. Exactly. Yeah, you took it? the words out of my mouth. So the pars integra, it's something yeah. that's integral to the liturgy. Mm. It's a component uh, which, if left out, will make the cake flop. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you could still have a mass, of course, and you could still recite the divine office, of course, mm -hmm. without its sung expression. Mm. But it will be like watching a black and white movie in mute. There will be something that is l less and something that is missing and something that experientially mm -hmm. should be there normatively. But the church, as, as a great mother, allows ways in which things can still operate, still mm -hmm. function, still work to a lesser degree, and obviously yeah. that's come about through the centuries for various reasons. Yeah, and I would uh, add to that as well from my own studies in, in liturgy. I, I've learned a lot from the Liturgy Guys podcast, uh, which is a wonderful podcast. I've started listening a lot to the Square Notes uh, podcast, which is another one I, I highly recommend. Um, but one thing I've learned too is, um, is the, the difference between uh, secular music and, and, and chant has a lot to do with the word. And so the way I've taught it in, uh, in liturgy studies is um, I, I ask them to, to have a listen to a chant and I do a, a, a glory be in a very simple tone. And I ask them to pick the time signature. So could you give us a Gloria Patri in a, in a, in a simple tone and we'll have the listeners see if they can pick the time signature. Gloria Patri et Filio. Et spiritu 
So what was the time signature? It's a trick question, isn't it? Three, four. It's Trinitarian. That's, that's three, <laughs> that's Trinitarian. <laughs> it's actually a trick question because what you find with the chant mm -hmm. is that there is no time signature. Because if I'm correct in this, uh, that the melody actually grows out of the text. In other words, it grows out of the word. Mm -hmm. And who is the word, Catholics? Christ himself. Yep. But when you start to hear at mass that 32 bar blues beat, all right, you're about to find that the word is about to become subservient to the beat rather than the melody being subservient to the word itself. Is, mm -hmm. is that a good way of describing yeah, yeah, it? That, yeah, and that's one of the, the uh, kind of essential beauties of the chant is that mm. because of that primacy of the text, uh, which nine times out of ten, mm -hmm. uh, or 99 times out of 100 even, um, the text is scriptural. Yes. Um, and one of the things that I've learned over the years, which has given me great, uh, you know, calls for admiration and inspiration of the chant itself, is that mm. not only does the melody come forth from the chant text and the accents of the actual words in the Latin, you know, the word dominus, mm -hmm. there's a, an elongation of the O of do, mm -hmm. because that's where the ancient Latins would have accented that word, dominus. They wouldn't have mm. said dominus or dominus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the, the chant melody will reflect that in some way, or uh, shape or form. But when you realize that a lot of the ancient chant melodies, not only do they respect the words, mm -hmm. but they respect the church's understanding of the words, i.e. Yeah. if you take a paragraph of text and you work out which word is most important mm -hmm. to the church, i.e. through the church fathers' mm -hmm. uh, commentaries like on that text. Dominus, which means Lord, yeah. referring to Christ himself. Exactly. Yeah. So a given word in an ancient chant melody mm. that is of prime importance in that context mm -hmm. will generally have a melodic high point or will have a slowing down on it or will have a low point, a, a kind of a grave accent. Yeah. There'll be something adding, about adding that. Adding a gravity exactly. to it almost. And there'll be yeah. something about that yeah. particular point in that particular chant mm. that has a particular melody attached to it that isn't recycled elsewhere, which mm. does happen, to bring that out mm. according to the church's understanding of that text. Mm -hmm. And that's why really the chant is the distillation of belief of the church in musical mm. form, just like sculpting or painting or architecture mm. or vesture or vestments is a distillation of belief in the sacrifice of the mass or in yeah. a particular scene of our Lord's life in, in art forms. The music of the church does that through the chant to express the belief that the church has on a particular text. Isn't that amazing? Mm. Absolutely incredible. Um, and of course, in the modern world, we also know from scientific experiments that not only listening to, but even more so singing Gregorian chant or chanting Gregorian chant actually has very positive physiological effects on the human body. Mm. Um, have you experienced much of that yourself? Uh, probably, without knowing it. Without knowing, um, yeah. <laughs> Were you aware of the fact that there has been scientific experiments which have shown, particularly with uh, the, the advent of MRIs and stuff, where they've put uh, these machines on, on uh, sort of monks chanting, that all sorts of things goes, goes on in the brain and that the physiological effects, it's, it lowers blood pressure, mm. it, uh, it lowers the heartbeat and all this sort of stuff. Were you, yeah, were you aware not, of that? Not of that particular yeah. instance, but it doesn't yeah. surprise me in the least that Yes. Uh, nature corresponds to, to uh, an order, mm. uh, and grace obviously comes forth from that order, uh, who in essence is God. Mm. Uh, and if we really truly believe that the sacramental life and the sacramentals and grace, our Lord himself, whatever you want to call it, mm. has effect on us, 
well then it has to have some impressionable, tangible, um, physical, natural effect upon mm -hmm. persons. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes it makes perfect sense to think that um, you know, I, oh, I feel such a spiritual presence, or I feel at peace, mm -hmm. or I feel this effectiveness from listening to chant. Mm. Well, then you can most likely probably quantify or qualify that with scientific evidence. Makes yes. a, makes a lot of sense. It does, doesn't it? You know, finally, science is catching up on the uh, on the benefits of, of fasting, for instance, and Gregorian yeah. chant. Well, like um, Eucharistic miracles, you know. The, the church is known for centuries. Yep. Yes. Yeah, yep. isn't that fascinating? So. This is definitely uh, going to be a, a real opportunity, the 20th of August, for those in and around Sydney, even if people wanted to come from the other side of the oh. country, it's going to be <laughs> worth the trip. Indeed. And it's at St. Thomas's Lewisham on the 20th of yep. August. Come along, get a taste for it yourself. And so it's, uh, it's, it's pretty big. And it's, a, it's a big thing for, for asthma too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, we uh, obviously being a, a somewhat young uh, entity of mm. 10 years, nine years, mm eight years, uh, nine in November, 10 next year. Um, we're still very much learning and working out how best to expose people and to mm -hmm. give people opportunities and to foster uh, a real learning environment for people. Yeah. Um, and there's constant feedback and that's great. Um, yeah. And this I think is, is, a, is an event that's had a lot of planning and thought put into it mm -hmm. in terms of uh, really honing in what we've done across a number of parishes, 50 to 100 parishes across the, the country and even uh, workshops in New Zealand and, and Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. um, so to, to kind of bring that into a centered approach uh, and our, our hope is really, um, you know, in discussions with the parish priest at St. Thomas's, mm -hmm. uh, our hope is that uh, St. Thomas's will become uh, a sacred music center, yes. uh, for not just for the archdiocese, but a center in Australia where resources can be can be held and, and, and mm -hmm. gotten from there or uh, people can come to there uh, mm -hmm. for workshops, people can attend uh, liturgies there in that church as well which is beautifully renovated mm -hmm. uh, in, in recent times um, to reflect that, that um, aesthetic uh, uh, context in which, in which liturgy takes place where it's all centered upon and focused upon mm -hmm. our, our Lord. Excellent. And any sacrifice. Excellent. And I believe that there's even a member of Asthma right now who is, uh, who is gallivanting around the world uh, <laughs> and uh, has just been at a sacred music conference over yep. in California. Yes, a uh, sacred liturgy conference, sacred liturgy conference uh, mm. in, in San Francisco, uh, at which uh, our own dear Cardinal Pell was present. Um, mm. And he offered a vote of mass of the Blessed Sacrament mm. um, on, on 30th of June, at which the choir component, the sacred music project run by uh, Mr. Peter Carter. Mm -hmm. um, and he was one of the original presenters or at Square Notes, of yep. Square Notes podcast. Yep. One yeah. of the, the founders yes. of that. Yep. Um, so he, he was in charge of the music aspect of that and they, and they sang Missa Papa Michelli, uh, mm. a wonderful mass setting uh, with uh, a wonderful director of music, Martin Baker from Westminster mm -hmm. in, in England. So a great uh, opportunity and um, Peter Carter offered for one of the asthma members to come over mm -hmm. um, as a, a kind of a scholarship um, position. Mm -hmm. um, so Mr. Stephen Smith made his way over for that yes. uh, and represented the Australian Sacred Music Association and networked with uh, various other wonderful musicians in the field. Indeed, in the and so we're very much looking forward to his return. Mm. Uh, safe return, we pray, and to, to hear uh, all about it. And uh, we might even 
get him in front of the camera at some point. Indeed. It may be a bit of an uphill battle for me, but I'll see what I can do <laughs> and uh, we'll find out what went on at, uh, at a sort of a, essentially an international conference, isn't yes. it, on, on yep. liturgy and, and sacred music. Yeah, there were people from yeah. Europe, South America, yeah. uh, obviously North America, Canada, Australia mm -hmm. even. Yep. So. Yes, wonderful. Um, I don't know where to go from here. So um, th there, there probably is one more thing that I would uh, that I would love to cover before um, we finish up. And so, um, uh, two things really. Um, so my my knowledge is is, is sparing in this area. Um, yourself and Stephen uh, are now my teachers and my mentors uh, in this in this venture. Um, as I understand it, you've got in Gregorian chant these things, th th these eight modes. Could you tell us a little bit about what these eight modes exactly are? Yeah, uh, so I, I guess uh, with any thorough introduction to chant, mm -hmm. um, one would speak about its, its historical um, beginnings, mm -hmm. where it came from, why it came about, uh, and all that generally comes back to a liturgical um, and prayerful context. Uh, it's complicated from a technical point of view to talk about chant mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it's a name or a term given to a body of uh, music as a genre that really spans at least 800 years in terms of composition. Mm -hmm. So we generally categorize uh, periods of music by a few hundred years max and even then uh, musicologists will give further inner mm -hmm. sections to the Baroque period or the classical period. Mm. When we say Gregorian chant, uh, we really are talking about something written from about eight, nine hundred, mm -hmm. well up to fourteen, fifteen hundred. Mm -hmm. But there's already a long-standing oral tradition prior to that written tradition, which is still Gregorian chant. Mm -hmm. So it's hard uh, to talk uh, too broadly about it. But mm -hmm. that being said, what's certain is that by the twelve, thirteen hundreds, um, the chant is comfortably uh, sat into a um, musical structure by which we've come to know as the modes. I see. Um, okay. And the modes would be, for um, a modern context, would be akin to major and minor, mm -hmm. like the keys of modern modern notation of modern music. Mm -hmm. But the modes themselves, uh, there's many theories as to their origins and mm -hmm. how they came about. Mm -hmm. uh, but what is amazing about them is there are eight different modes or four families of modes mm -hmm. uh, and the first two and three and four and five and six and seven and eight are coupled together. Mm -hmm. And for someone like myself with my brain of categorization, mm -hmm. when you look at a massive book of chant, you know, yay thick, and mm -hmm. you think, how many pieces are in that? Let's say a thousand, two thousand. Mm -hmm. Are they all different? Mm -hmm. Okay, they're all on four lines. They all share a notation. They all, mm -hmm. uh, presumably an old book, they're all in Latin. Is that really all they have in common? Because that's still pretty daunting. Yep. It's like looking at a piece of poetry. Okay, it's all in English. Mm. Um, but there's 2,000 poems here. Are they all different? Are they written mm. by the same guy? Like, what's, mm. what's common to them? Mm -hmm. To think that the entire corpus of chant, give or take, as with everything in chant, give or take a little, mm. is confined to these eight modes or these eight scales or these eight um, uh, skeletal kind of sound forms is quite amazing. Mm -hmm. And then to then think that this uh, structure or this constriction to eight sounds or eight modes mm. lends itself to such a variety and a variation of chant. Mm. Inversely is amazing that it opens back out to such an amazing mm. variety and such an amazing difference. Mm. 
Um, and each mode, you know, according to uh, different theorists and different monks, and, and a lot has been written on it, each mode carries its own uh, sense or its own mm-hmm. um, feeling, to use a, a less dense word. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can certainly be reflective of, of uh, the season that the church is in or the particular liturgy or reflective of the text. Of, um, of each of the individual psalms too, like a lament could have... Uh, more of a minor feel to it. And, Potentially, and, but it can it can yeah. flip between them. Interesting. Um, there are yeah, some yeah. psalms, like the uh, Psalm 113, in Exitu Israel de Egypto, when, when Israel exited out of Egypt. Mm. Uh, and it's attached to a, a tone that, as I said, nine times out of ten, that is not one of the eight modes. Mm-hmm. It's called Tonus Peregrinus, the mm-hmm. wandering tone. And yes. it's almost certain that that tone itself goes back to use in the temple. And yeah, you mentioned the, yeah. earlier that uh, that a lot of these uh, this chant goes goes all the way back. Yeah, and and Tonus Peregrinus is a is a particularly interesting one mm. because there there is good evidence to suggest that it goes all the way back to what at least the Second Temple, right? Yeah, and and what's probably more certain in that um, mm. at least uh, mm. framework is that. 113, Psalm 113 is the beginning of the Thanksgiving Psalms that would have been mm-hmm. prayed at the Jewish Last Supper. So the one instance that our Lord is definitively mm-hmm. uh, noted as singing, i.e. Yes. the Thanksgiving prayers, uh, he and the disciples sung them at the end of the Last Supper in Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more than likely that he sang that Psalm 113 yes. uh, to that tone. To that tone. Um, so Christ himself used that tone exactly. to and sing the, that, that Psalm. And What's even more amazing is that I believe it's a tone most Catholics would be familiar with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. How does it go? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, sing, uh, I'll sing a little bit of it and then mm. give the, the modern context in which it's come down to us. So that's the essential form of it. Mm-hmm. And then we know it these days in a somewhat changed form, but certainly in its, in its original um, inspiration. Our Father who art mm. in heaven, Pater noster qui es in celis, sed libera nos amalo. So it has that full range, that full ambitus yeah. that the original tone had. Mm. And one of the reasons given in, in some of the... Uh, uh, commentaries from the Middle Ages is that that tone was used for the Our Father because Psalm 113 talks about leaving the earthly exile, mm. the provision that God gives to the people of Israel in the desert journey, uh, bread, water, mm. uh, and the fact that the Our Father is given to the new people of Israel as the prayer for their journey of exile mm-hmm. and the provision of daily bread. Mm. So there's this beautiful marrying up of something that's you know, uh, a few millennia ancient, let's say, Mm. Uh, but this substantial idea that's connected to it remains the same yeah. and chant in so many respects that little sliver of depth in that one context can be applied across the board in so many other ways absolutely amazing and glorious it is uh, so there you go uh, listeners if you've if you, your ears have perked up or you've heard something that has made you pause and wonder then if you're anywhere near Sydney in August you know get to St Thomas Canterbury in Lewisham um, and uh, and join us yep. for uh, for the Jubilate Deo Parish event. Be great. 
And Ronan, I can't thank you enough for coming in and talking with us today. Thank you My pleasure. for your time. Um, and I, I look forward to many more of these conversations. Same. Thank yeah. you very much. All right. And thank you to the listeners uh, for joining us and for listening to this recording after the fact. You honour us by doing so. Uh, but that is enough from us for now. So God bless. Thank you.